ladies and gentlemen, Cardinal fans of all ages, welcome to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. I'm Chris Grace. I'll be your host, joined every week by current Wesleyan Athletic Director and former head football coach, Mike Whalen. Each week, Coach and I will interview some of your favorite former Cardinals and find out exactly what they've been up to. Without further ado, it's time to check in with the coach, Mike Whalen. Coach, it hasn't been that long, but we're back and we've got another fantastic guest tonight with uh, really just an inspirational life story. Can't wait to talk to our guest. Tell everyone who we've got coming on our podcast. We have, uh, we have someone from my era. Uh, we have uh, Michael Arcereri, class of 1986, and uh, a thousand point uh, score on the men's basketball team. And this was pre three point line. So very impressive to be a thousand point score pre three point line. Uh, but uh, Michael's had an incredible journey uh, that's involved a lot of twists and turns and everything from, uh, you know, coaching high school basketball to going to law school to working in the NBA. So uh, I'm excited for this one, Chris. Yeah, you're not going to want to miss this interview. Uh, Michael, you know, like Coach was saying, has done a lot of different things, and it's really just a, a terrific story of never giving up on your dreams, no matter how long it takes, no matter how many twists and turns. And we'll get to that. But before we get there, I want to remind you how you can stay connected with our podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Wes underscore athletics. You can hit me up directly on Twitter at Chris Grace 82. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Wesleyan dot athletics on Instagram at Wesleyan underscore athletics. We'd love to hear from you. we got some great guests coming up soon, but for now, uh, coach and I are going to take on tonight's guest class of 1986. He's been a scout in the NBA for multiple teams and he's got a great story. It's coming up right now. Michael Arcieri. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to yet another edition of Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score, your only official Wesleyan Athletics podcast. Joined as always by the coach, Mike Whalen. I'm Chris Grace. We've got a very special guest tonight, class of 1986, former Wesleyan basketball star. This is a man who has scouted for multiple NBA teams, and he has a fantastic story which teaches you about perseverance, about not giving up and chasing your dreams. Our guest tonight, Michael Arcieri. Michael, welcome to our podcast. Thanks very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to uh, see you. Happy to see my old friend, Mike Whalen, from way back in the day. So it's a real pleasure to spend some time <laughs> with you guys tonight. <laughs> no question about it. No question, no question about it, Mike. We go back a long way, and uh, we had a chance to reminisce before we came on the show tonight. But uh, um no, obviously know a lot of the same guys and, you know, playing for Coach Kenny and can't wait to uh, to get into all this stuff uh, with you tonight. So welcome. Thanks so much. Look forward to it. Thank well, th thanks for queuing me up, Coach. So, Michael, the first thing we always do with anyone on our show um, is we like to ask, how did you find your way to Wesleyan? Tell us about your quick background before you ended up at Wesleyan, kind of how you chose Wesleyan and how you ended up in Middletown. Sure. Uh, I was at uh, Bergen Catholic High School in uh, Oradell, New Jersey, uh, the Arcieri family. We were originally from uh, Whitestone in Queens, you know, New York City. And then we moved to uh, Bergen County in Ridgewood, New Jersey, when I was going into the fourth grade. And then Our Lady of Mount Carmel Grammar School and then Bergen Catholic High School was one of the more prominent schools and had a great reputation for football and basketball. 
So went to BC, uh, played uh, basketball four years, freshman JV and a couple of years of varsity, played a little junior varsity baseball as well. Um, and so as I was finishing up my, uh, in quotations, my career there at Bergen Catholic, of course, every high school senior wants to go and play college basketball. And so I was, I was a, a pretty good player. We had a very good team. Uh, I was recruited by a couple of Ivy League schools, uh, a couple of uh, Division II schools as well, and, um, and a number of Division III schools. And of course, we all think we're, we're better than we actually are, or we have these great hopes to go on. And back at that time in 1982, the, right, the Big East had kind of come on the scene for a couple of years in schools like St. John's and Georgetown and Boston College. Um, but anyway, I was right. The dream was to play division one basketball. And so I'd applied to a number of schools, Holy Cross, uh, Notre Dame, Boston College. Um, but as I was going through the process of making applications to schools, my mom and my dad, especially my dad has always given me uh, wonderful advice, man. I'm very lucky. I had a dad who always uh, was objective, but always thoughtful. And he, he watched me grind and practice and he knew the passion and love I had for the game. Um, and so he supported all of it, but he also said, look, I appreciate what you want to play at the highest level you can, but let's not forget too, that college is about education and preparing yourself for life. And there's some excellent basketball that's not only in division one or division two. And so let's make sure that as we think through this process um, that we also uh, be as thoughtful as we can and look at other schools that might be um, smaller basketball wise, but um, top 20 rated academic and education. And so uh, Wesleyan um, Williams, I applied to as well. Um, I did not apply to uh, Amherst. Anyway, so Wes and Williams were in there in addition to the schools I mentioned. And so I ended up being um, accepted at Boston College uh, and Holy Cross, which were division one programs, schools that had not recruited me. Um, so they didn't know about me. It would have been walking on to a program. Um, I didn't lack for confidence as a player. And part of me felt like, okay, let me see if I can do this. But I also had made a recruiting visit up to, uh, to Middletown, spent time with coach Kenny and some of the players on the team at that time had made a, a recruiting trip to uh, Williams as well. And it was, um, I don't know, life has these small little um, fork in the road moments. I went to Wes, it was that uh, typical, beautiful uh, fall day, met with coach, some players, walked the campus and uh, got a great vibe from Coach Kenny and the staff, um, the campus itself. A couple of weeks later, I, I went to visit Williams and it was, December or January, maybe it was about a month or so later, and Williamstown, it's a, it's a whiteout. I mean, it, is, it had snowed a couple of feet. All you could see was snow and where they'd plowed. Um, Williams plays Wesleyan that night that we go to visit. I'd spoken a little bit with the Williams coach. Um, Wes beats Williams on a buzzer beater from the corner. I think the score was 76-74. Um, 
And I just remember driving back from Williamstown to Ridgewood, New Jersey with my dad and just one of those things that's hard to put a finger on, but I felt like Wesleyan was just the place. And uh, who knows if I'd have gone to Williams first and it was bright and sunny and a beautiful fall day, but um, I, I got a great feel about Wes and ultimately I landed on, hey, let's go get the best education you can try to get. Let's play a, a good round of basketball. Um, also my, my, my family was in Ridgewood, New Jersey in Bergen County, but we also had a home in uh, Madison, Connecticut. Um, along the shore there because my father uh, ran drug research. He's a medical doctor and ran antibiotic drug research for shearing in uh, New Jersey and then transferred and was working at Miles Pharmaceuticals, which was around exit 42 on 95. So right outside of New Haven. So my dad, um, came, bless his soul, came to every single one of my Wesleyan home games uh, over wow. four years. And dad made a great sacrifice and he was, he would leave New Jersey on Monday morning, drive to work in West Haven, and then he would stay in Madison, Connecticut through the week, do his job, do his work, and then come home on Friday nights to be with the family for the weekend. Unless I was playing for Bergen Catholic in a, in a game, which I, I was, then he would make the drive all the way back. So dad, dad put a lot of miles in, but was that super supportive, wonderful father. So him being close by was also a factor, but ultimately it was the allure of a great education. And not only that, I, and I promised myself I wouldn't use the word diversity uh, in, this, in this interview since it's always been the buzzword for Wesleyan, but um, certainly there was a flavor of that that I'd gotten um, when I visited West that fall that um, <clears throat> just was a great appeal to me. And I'm not saying Williams doesn't have it, I'm sure it does, but everything kind of fell into place. And I never really looked back and thought, oh, I wonder if I could have walked on at Holy Cross. I mean, never ever had those regrets. And I'm sure we'll get a little more into playing ball and studying at West, but it was, um, it was a blessing all the way around. It was a blessing maybe that it snowed in Williamstown that random day. Um, you know, Herb Kenny is a charismatic, persuasive guy, you know, whatever you want to say, but um, looking back now on it, let's see, I'm 56, uh, graduated 86. Um, but anyway, so we're in 2020. So we're coming up on 14 and 21. We're coming up on a 35th uh, reunion. So uh, 35 years, I've never, never had a regret and uh, felt grateful to have the opportunity. So, so you mentioned there a little bit there, Mike, uh, you know, in terms of uh, playing for Coach Kenny and um, you know, we, we've uh, we've talked to a couple other guests who played for Coach Kenny, and and uh, you know, I think um, you know, obviously, he, he coached fo coach football when I was at West, and also coached golf, and um, you know, he you know, much like uh, Coach Mack and Costi, you know, was 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 an old school kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. so so tell us a little bit about that uh, that playing experience for, for sure. Her. Sure, I, I definitely will. Um, and I, I think old school is certainly um, an apt and a good description for him. And, um, and I like, I love old school, by the way, so that in no way is derogatory and it's, it's complimentary. Um, so my freshman year, so uh, Chris Brown, who, who, who's still a close friend and a guy that I stay in contact with, 
Chris was a freshman with me from uh, Fordham Prep uh, from the Bronx. Chris and I were the, um, I think we were the first freshmen to play um, varsity at West. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging. I bring that up only to say that I think we were one of the few people to actually get four years of Herb Kenny uh, as a coach. <laughs> um, and, and, and he stood on, on what he believed in, in terms of how the game should be played. Um, and it's funny, I've, I've developed, <laughs> and life is always like this, right? You develop a greater um, appreciation for parents or friends or teachers. And I think I've developed a greater appreciation for coach also because as I, as my life has gone on and I've worked and I coached a lot and then I've worked in basketball um, and an appreciation for the defensive side of the court, which I will raise my hand and say, I did not have a well-developed appreciation for that side of the court um, <laughs> as a grammar school player, a high school player. I, I was, I was pretty skilled offensively. And I remember Herb would say to me um, in the middle of practice, probably when I wasn't sitting down low enough in a stance and defending, he'd blow the whistle and he'd say, you know, Arcieri, you're a 100 to 99 player, Arcieri. And I didn't know what that meant the first time he said it. And he said, you don't care at all about defense. You're happy to win the game 100 to 99. You think you can outscore everybody and that you don't need to play defense. Well, that's not how we do it here at Westland. Um, and, and that was not the first time nor the last time that he would say that to me. Um, but he was a, he was correct, right. In terms of valuing that side of the court. And it was not, so, it was something that I came to be more serious about at Wesleyan. Although I think some of my teammates, if they were to listen to this might laugh a little bit and say, oh, I don't know how serious Mike got about playing defense. Um, but certainly coaching in high school and coaching even higher level players and then working for teams and constructing rosters and just the all out importance of defense and rebounding and how critical I am with respect to defense. And even as I evaluate players, it's kind of ironic to me as Michael Arcieri that I look back to the high school player I was um, and defense wasn't a big thing, but for Herb, it was a huge thing. Um, it was his way or the highway. I'll tell one more little story. Um, I was a pretty good foul shooter, and I believed that I was going to make every single time I stepped to the line. One day in practice, we were working on situational drills, and uh, this situation was we're up by three points with 20 seconds left in the game, and we've got the ball. We have to inbound it, and then the defense was going to foul us to stop the clock. So the ball get, gets inbounded to me, and I hold on to the ball right? Because the defense is coming to me and I want to get fouled because I want to shoot the foul shots. And there was an open teammate 10 feet away. So the ball is inbound and I catch it. I hold it. The defender fouls me. Her blows the whistle, the call the foul. And I'm just thinking, okay, he, this is a good basketball play. Let me go to the line and try to sink too. And so her blows the whistle. He says, Arcieri, what are you doing? And I'm dumbfounded. I have no idea what he's talking about. And he said, didn't you see your teammate 10 feet away? He was wide open. He said, what do you think? You're the best foul shooter on the team, so you should shoot him? Let's go, move the ball. So, <laughs> so I walk up to the foul line. I'm thinking to myself, man, if I ever want to make two foul shots in my life, th this in practice, this is the day. Luckily, I did. 
but that was that and probably herb would have probably picked to have me be at the foul line in a game to shoot foul shots but that didn't matter his point was i'm going to teach you guys the right way to play and um and that's who he was i'll tell one more story because i i, I adore my dad so if you guys will indulge me um this is a story that involves him and by the way my parents are still alive i'm blessed dad's 83 mom's 79 um they're doing well so talk about a blunder um i don't know if any I talked about a freshman playing basketball varsity at Wesleyan. So the, the flip side of that coin is it's our first road trip. And you guys don't know this about me, but punctuality is a, is a huge thing for me. I'm never going to be late and I'm going to be too early. My wife hates it because we're getting to the airport three hours ahead instead of two. But our first road trip, we're going up to Hamilton College. It's November 1982, and I wake up at four o'clock in the morning for a 7.30 bus that's leaving from in front of the gym. So I shower up, I'm dressed, my, my red leather Wesley, you remember the bag, Mike, the red Wesleyan bag with oh, the yeah, black yeah. lettering, it's packed, my sneakers, my socks, and it's a quarter to five, and it's dark outside, and I can't go anyplace. So let me just sit down on my bed and just turn. I had a little you know, black and white TV. Let me turn on my TV and kill some time. So, of course, you know what happened. I leaned over. There's nothing on television anyway. And sure enough, my phone rings and it's 740 a.m. And now I've, I'm now coherent and my heart is beating terribly. And it's the gentleman. I, I can't remember the gentleman's name from the equipment room. And I've. I'm embarrassed to not remember his name. Bob Chapetta. I'm sorry. Bob Chapetta. No, Bob was the uh, right. Bob was with us, but it was the older gentleman in the equipment room who also had kind of a crusty kind of you know, <laughs> personality, but a, but a good guy. Hey, Arcieri, you know the the bus is leaving in five minutes. Where are you? And so I said, okay, I'm I'm packed. I'm ready. Um, you know, don't go anyplace. And I lived in Butterfield A my freshman year. So I was all the way on the edge of the campus. I sprint to uh, the gymnasium too late. The bus has left. So now it's eight o'clock and my world, I'm crestfallen. My world is coming to an end. I'm a freshman. I've missed the bus on the first road trip of the year. So where do I turn? The only place I know to turn, my dad. Call up my dad, dad. Um, and I knew the moment I said the words, I missed the bus, like that was going to be it from what he was going to want to say to me. So I said, dad, I missed the bus. And he said, and my dad in, in typical fashion says, fine, it's 7.45. I'll be there at 9.45. You better be in front of the gym. I'll see you then. So he, he, he had three hours to go at me in the car <laughs> on the way up there. And my dad drives from Ridgewood, New Jersey to Middletown which was about a two hour drive. We get up to Hamilton College. The team had just arrived a little bit before us. I guess they must've stopped on the road and guys, we, they, we were in some dorm because it was an overnight weekend tournament. And um, so I walk in with my bag and guys are looking at me, seniors are kind of shaking their head and snickering like, dude, are you kidding me? But they were also like, wow, what are you doing here? Because we knew you didn't get on the bus. And so um, 
So I'm not saying a word. I just go find the, the dorm or the bed where I'm staying, put my stuff down. Herb walks in a couple seconds later. He just looks at me. He didn't really shake his head. He didn't really say anything. Um, and then he caught me um, when the two of us were alone. And he just looked at me and he said, your freshman season, your, fir your first road trip. Not a solid way to start, huh? <laughs> I said, uh, I said, no, coach, uh, certainly not. And uh, he said, okay, well, um, stay ready. And so he didn't, uh, he didn't go off on me, didn't try to belittle me, or, um, and I think I actually got a little bit of playing time. But <clears throat> to talk about an inauspicious beginning um, at, at West, but I, I share that story mostly for love of father. My dad didn't hesitate. He probably was in his pajamas. He threw his stuff on. He drove up. He stayed. He stayed the overnight. I, I don't recall perfectly. I don't think I played in the first game, and maybe played in the second game. And then he drove home, you know, by himself for three and a half hours while I went back with the team. So um, th there were some good moments, by the way, during my four years at West. I've kind of shared. <laughs> I've shared all the ones that I feel well, like I need. It's those, a confessional for me here. I'm in confession are, right now with you, Mike. <laughs> those are the life lessons, Michael. Yeah, those are the yeah. life lessons, you but, know. And, and but Herb uh, was, um, yeah, he was tough, but he was fair. Um, and I, and I do think missing the bus and not playing, but most importantly, not playing defense, um, was something that he stood on because I think he, I think he thought I could play offense. Um, but, but fair enough. I, I can't begrudge a coach who, who has a philosophy and as long as you're fair, treat guys, uh, fairly in the same way and, and have a level of accountability, tough to argue with that. So, um, he was, um, he was a tough guy, but fair. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed the opportunity to play for him. What, what, when did they put in the three-point line? Was it during? It, your um, boy, boy, that's a, that's, a, that's a knife right to the heart, brother, because they, they put the three-point line in about 25 minutes after my last NCAA game. <laughs> that's right. They, they, put, they, they instituted it for the 86-87 season. So um, that so that makes it even more impressive that you scored a thousand points then. You know, Mike. Well, thank you. You, you know, what's interesting is I've always because I you know, I played I, I played some after Wesleyan as well with a three point line, and a lot of my jump shooting came from beyond that distance. But I always wondered what that would have done to my game because I also I like to penetrate and I was an assist guy too, and I just wonder if because you've seen there weren't that I think I was the third thousand point score yeah this is up to 1986 the school's been around for a while and if you look at the list of guys who've scored a thousand since 86 it's got to be 20 because you know joe riley's done a great job and yep. put that banner up which was wonderful and there are a lot of names up there the right. point simply is i think that three-point line's got a little something to do with a little bit of scoring proliferation but i always wondered how that would have affected my game and if i would have just opted to stay on the perimeter and not look to get into the lane and to spray out and dish to guys. But, uh, but anyway, we don't have to spend too much time speculating about it, but it's, it's a great question and a painful one. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have the pleasure tonight on Chris and coach beyond the box score joined by class of 86 thousand point scorer, as coach just pointed out, Michael Arcieri, nice enough to spend some time with us. Michael's got, you know, one of the best, I was doing research, you know, your story, you know, from when you finished college, kind of how you've evolved into your work with 
many different NBA teams and scouting departments and, and basketball strategy. It's an amazing story. So coach and I, every week we talk about, you know, coach likes to say, what's the grind? What was that moment? How did you get from A to B? Um, you know, if you could just kind of take us through after you were done at Wesley and, you know, a, a kind of a brief version, some of the different things you did. Cause I know you got a lot of things that you did, um, but you, you spent time in Europe and you, you know, you, you did a lot of different things, but, but I want everyone wants to hear from you. So talk about kind of what happened after your time in Middletown and kind of how it led to everything that you've been doing up until yeah, recently. I'd be happy to, it's a, like I said, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a long story. I'm going to try to boil it down and give a reader's digest version and, and feel free to cut me off and tell me to stop talking. But um, graduated in 86. I've always remember the date, June 1st. And I took a job as a paralegal in at the law firm of uh, Sage Gray, Todd and Sims. It was in Two World Trade Center and the firm was on the 100th floor. And I can remember... Uh, the views from the 100th floor of the World Trade Center were just stupendous. But I, I, I got a job right away. Um, law was was something I'd thought about, but I, <clears throat> I want to keep it I want to keep it real and candid here. Um, <clears throat> I was always thinking about playing basketball, and um, at the time I didn't have dual citizenship, but but my mom is from the city of Bologna in Italy. Um, my dad, who's a, a New York kid, uh, went to medical school, went to the South for a year and a half, and he went to St. John's, graduated St. John's. And my dad went to medical school at the University of Bologna in Italy. So I, I don't want to talk too much about that, but dad ends up meeting my mom there. They marry in 1963, and then I'm born in, in October of 64. So I was able to get Italian citizenship by virtue of my mom was an Italian citizen, although living in the States when she gave birth to me. Anyway, so even though I was a paralegal working in the real estate department at this uh, very you know, white shoe old firm, and it was a great experience, but I was still, it was all about basketball and trying to play. So I went, so while I was working as a paralegal and I was living in New York City, uh, I went, I had some tryouts in 1987 uh, in England um, that, uh, Ironically, my dad helped put together, he'd been there on a business trip and then nothing kind of came from that. And then in 1988, I ended up going back over there um, with Italian citizenship now. And it was right about that time that the Italian league was considering, the Italian league did not allow dual citizens to play as a country person. Uh, one of the few remaining countries to not allow that. Most France, Germany, Spain had allowed that. So finally, in the, in the winter of 88, word got out that the Italian Players Federation was now going to change this rule and allow a dual citizen to play in Italy as an Italian, which was important because as an Italian, I could compete and, and make one of these teams potentially. But, but the, the two foreign player spots were all going to be NBA players, right? Right. And in fact, Artis Gilmore... Um, Hall of Famer from most of the years at San Antonio, and then Gene Banks, great player from Duke University, and then um, played in Chicago, were the two Americans on this team in Bologna. So I go over in 1988 with my passport, and, um, and I try out for a couple of weeks. I play in a couple of friendly scrimmage games, and they liked me. Um, and I, I end up signing what is a three-year contract to play with this team. And, and think about how wonderful this is. It's in the city of Bologna, where my mom is from, 
Her family is still running a cafe right in the center of town. It's where my mom and dad met. I mean, it's filled with sentimentality and, and the city of Bologna is also known as the Città del Basket, the, the basketball city. There are two famous teams there and one of the teams I'd signed to play with. And I wanna be clear, so the contract was, there was a precondition, right? The precondition being that the Italian Basketball Federation in fact changes the rule to allow these dual citizens to play as Italians. So they, they hadn't made that rule change official yet, but everybody believed they were going to. So I go there, have my tryout, sign the contract, come back to the States, um, leave uh, the job. Now the law firm I'd been at had, um, had dissolved actually, this, this hundred year old law firm had dissolved uh, Sage Gray, Todd and Sims and the real estate department that I was in had moved to Rockefeller Center and a different law firm, Chadbourne and Park. My dad likes to joke that I'm the only paralegal in history who could, who, who could cause a hundred year law firm to dissolve and, <laughs> and go under. So um, I come back in 88. So 89, now I am just training, working out, lifting weights, swimming and playing ball because my agents told me I'm going to have to go back in March or April to start playing with this team. And um, around that time, late March, my agent calls me and says, hey, I got some bad news for you. I didn't like the sounds of that. And he says, hey, the, the Italian Players Federation, right? Not the Basketball Federation. It's like the NBA and the NBA's Players Association. The Players Association has now informed the Basketball Federation that if they change that rule and allow a dual citizen like you are, Sierra, who they don't really view as an Italian, right? You're an American playing over there. Um, we're gonna strike the players say, we're not gonna play the 89-90 season. And so PS, the Basketball Federation did not change the rule. So my agent had called me to say, hey, sorry, but um, this is just not gonna happen. PS, there was some landmark law. I believe it was a soccer player by the name of Bozeman. Don't quote me on this. He may have been- yeah, Bozeman, that's correct. That's right. So he, he brought a, he was a soccer player and he brought a, it's a free uh, transfer brought, is what it's called. Exactly. He brought transfer. a big Correct. suit and he, and he, he wins and opens the floodgates really for players being able to cross boundaries and go play. And so now if you go to Europe to scout pretty much every country, every country has got two, three, four, five, some six guys who are from different countries. So um, I missed the three point line by 20 minutes and I missed uh I, I missed uh, some basketball in Italy uh, by a couple of years. Um, but, you know, everything happens for a reason. So that was 1989. I did a little bit of work with uh, ABC Sports. Um, I was a runner. I was, uh, they were broadcasting uh, Big Ten college basketball. And so I was basically flying to the site, University of Michigan, University of Illinois, Purdue, wherever it might be. And I was... Um, exactly what a runner sounds like. I was picking up the rental car and going to pick up Dick Vitale at the airport um, or taking Cheryl, you know, the, the on-air talent, taking Cheryl Miller to production meetings, um, helping. And then during the games, I was at, uh, mostly I was doing shot charts, you know, three-point shot charts and running them to the production trucks. And so uh, it was, I mean, as a basketball guy, right, it was a fun thing to be around. Um, but candidly, the, being on the media side just really wasn't my thing 
I kind of, right, I was used to playing and, and wanting to be in the activity. Um, and I don't mean that in any uh, negative way at all about the media. I love the media, it's super important. Um, so that was the balance of 89. And then in 90, I end up going back to Italy because there was, um, for some reason, the playing uh, situation had come up again. Although, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't ultimately open up in Italy until 92 or 93. But I go and I meet with uh, Mike D'Antoni, who at the time was the head coach of the team in Milano. And Mike couldn't have been nicer. I mean, super nice guy down to earth. We met for a little while and, and the conversation was more about coaching, you know, with the uh, Olympia Milano team. Uh, you know, he called his wife. She came. They took me to lunch. I mean, they, they couldn't have been nicer, but nothing really, again, was able to materialize from that. I come back to the States. It's around uh, October of, uh, yeah, it's, it's right around my birthday, late October. And so now I'm back in the States. I don't have a job. I'm not exactly sure what the playing situation is going to look like. And so I say to myself, well, I'd love to do some coaching here. And I call up a guy by the name of Jim Stroker, who's famous in Ridgewood, New Jersey, the Stroker family, um, very well known, great athletes, great family. And I said to him, hey, and he and I didn't go to Ridgewood High School where Jim Stroker had been, but I I knew him from playing recreational sports and baseball, basketball, football my whole life growing up there. And he says to me, so I called him to see if there are any job opportunities. He said, there's nothing here in Ridgewood, but uh, John Fiocchi is looking for an assistant uh, varsity and a JV coach at Old Japan, uh, Northern Valley Regional High School at Old Japan. And so John Fiocchi was the JV coach at Bergen Catholic when I was a senior. So while I was playing for the varsity, John was coaching the JV. So I end up calling John and, uh, and, I, and I end up coaching the... Uh, the JV and assisting him with the varsity for two seasons, the 90-91 and the 91-92 seasons. And I'm sure uh, Coach Whalen can appreciate this. Um, th there are a few pleasures greater than coaching and playing maybe one of them, but I adored the, the coaching experience. And in addition to just trying to help basketball players get better as players, but to, to try in some humble, modest way to mold men you know, or women, if you're coaching women, um, but it it was it was so satisfying, um, and I and I loved it. So I was I was in New York City, and then making a reverse commute and coaching in uh, New Jersey, and so then the uh, 91, 92 season. Um, sorry, it's at the end of my 90, 91 coaching season. So when the season was over and season ended in March or April of 1990. So a friend of mine, uh, her name is Billy Streets. She's a she, but her name is Bill. Her name is Theodosia, but her mom loved Billy Holiday. So Billy Streets had worked for a couple of years with the New Jersey Nets. So Billy calls me one day and says, hey, I know you got some downtime right now. The Nets are looking for some people to sell tickets out of their locker room. So I know, Mike, you want to hear a story about a little bit of persistence or I'll call this story luck or dumb luck or whatever you want to call it. But it's um, one of the fork in the road, a critical moments in my life, as it turns out. So I said, sure, um, I'd be happy to. Anything I can do to get my foot in there at the Meadowlands Arena, 
because I'd, I'd always been thinking about whether it was playing or coaching or working in basketball as a scout or front office. So uh, I, start, uh, I start selling tickets for uh, the New Jersey Nets. This is 1990. Uh, uh, Kenny Anderson and Derek Coleman, Drazen Petrovic, may he rest in peace. Um, Chris Morris, Mookie Blaylock, they had a very good team back then. So this is now the summertime. And I'm in, a, I'm in the Nets locker room and they put a couple of tables and phone lines and a phone book in there. And they ask us to, um, to cold call and sell Nets tickets. So I didn't never really been much of a salesperson. Um, and so, but I happen to know a lot of people who like basketball. <laughs> so I'm there the first week and I sell, um, I can't remember the numbers, but it was, Ten, twelve thousand dollars worth of tickets in the first week, and unbeknownst to me, because I I went through a different entrance to the Meadowlands to get down to the locker room, so I did not walk past the sales office. I didn't know any of those guys, and so unbeknownst to me, they were they would issue a weekly report, and so the weekly. So now this is being retold to me after the fact, right? So. I guess the first week report comes out and Michael Arcieri, $12,000 in ticket sales. And then the, the next name had like $400 because it was a slow time of year. So I'm not saying those guys weren't doing their job. It was just it's hard to sell basketball tickets in June and July. So this happens for a couple of three weeks. And finally, um, Jim Lamparello, who was the vice president of sales, um, calls me into his office and he says, hey, you've been doing a good job. Um, we'd like to give you a full-time job. So, and Jimmy Lamparello was very friendly with my friend, Billy Streets, the, the woman who got me this little sales position. Um, what I didn't know at the time was that Jimmy Lamparello was very good friends with Willis Reed, the GM of the Nets. So Jimmy says to me, hey man, we wanna make you full-time. We'll give you a commission, we'll give you a desk in an actual office here with the rest of the guys. And I said, uh, I said, Jimmy, I really appreciate that. Um, but I want to be candid with you. Um, there's a reason why I came to the Nets locker room to sell tickets. And it wasn't to move up to the sales office is because I've, uh, I've got a basketball background and I've kind of had a, a scheme or a plan to try to find a way to get into Willis Reed's office and see about doing a little bit of work with the team. So uh, I'll make you a deal and, I will, and I'm no deal maker. So I've had a couple of moments of clarity and everything else has been relatively incoherent for me, but a couple of moments of clarity. And I said, let me get me a meeting with Willis. And if I can't make something work, then I'll be happy to stay here and take the position doing sales with the Nets. Jimmy, good guy too, right? to this day, um, salt of the earth. Jimmy says, you got a deal. So it was a Friday afternoon, a couple of days later, I walk into Willis's office with Jimmy. I'd met Willis one time previously. And so Willis says to me, uh, hey, uh, Jimmy tells me you wanted to sit down and have a conversation. And I said, uh, yeah. So I wanted to uh, let you know that I'd be very interested in having, um, you know, playing a role, helping you in the front office, you know, doing some scouting. And no sooner had those words got out that, and, you know, Willis, of course, is 6'9". He's got huge hands. He's sitting behind his big round mahogany desk. 
black leather chair and he's just a, a mountain of a man, you know, and again, but a soft-spoken, I, I, I couldn't love him any more than I do. And he starts in on me. He says, you know, Michael, he says, I appreciate you coming in here. And Jimmy says, you've done a really good job for us. And uh, I get it. You're a basketball player. You'd love to work in basketball, but you know, it's a tough life and it's, it's just not stable and you, you don't make a lot of money and you gotta, you gotta know people, you gotta have contacts. So I already, another moment of clarity, I've, I've had two in my life. So I see where this is going and it's not going in a good place. So I, I motioned for a timeout and I said, Willis, let me call a timeout for a second, if you don't mind. And he, he kind of half smiles and he says, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time you know, to see me today. I appreciate Jimmy bringing me in here. I said, and I understand what you're saying I'm, about all those points. I said, but I want, if I can be candid with you, um, I'm 27 and I'm not really interested in making a bunch of money. Um, I'm single. I'm not really interested in stability. And I said, and to be candid, further candid, I think I have the two best contacts in the state of New Jersey. I got you and I got him. I don't look at Jimmy. I just point at him. I said, let me go scout a game for you. If you don't like what I do, I'll come here and help sell tickets. If you like what I'll do, maybe you let me go scout another one. And we go from there. And I kind of glanced over at Jimmy and he kind of had a half smile on his face. And I guess, again, I'm not persuasive, but I guess I just caught Willis enough off guard. And he says, all right, Michael, go see, I can't remember his assistant's name. It starts with a P, but he says, go see, it may have been Patty, um, and go get yourself some credentials for, it was the, uh, the Big East ACC Challenge in Providence, in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, P.S., I go up there uh, in my car. I ended up sitting next, I remember I sat next to Danny Manning, Danny Manning's dad, um, who was scouting for, I think, the Spurs at the time. And um, it was NC State was playing UConn and Wake Forest was playing Pitt. I still remember some of the player. Anyway, Chris Corciani. Chris Corciani was a little bit later, brother. I'm a lot older than you are. So Corch was, Corch was later on. Scotty Burrell. With, yeah, uh, that's 1990 UConn, 1991. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Roy Rogers, Wake Forest. Yeah. Um, Tom Gugliotta, NC that's State. Right. Sean Miller. Anyway, so I did my scouting reports. I came back home. I went into work on Monday morning. I put, I, and, they, and, and this is 1990 now, man. It's scouting reports on an index card, right? Now it's, it's, it's a database and, and four pages long. And Willis and I sit there, my heart's beating again. Willis is reading these index cards. He reaches into his drawer of his desk. He pulls out the college schedule. He flips it across the desk to me and he says, Go scout any game you want to scout. Send in the reports. So, um, right, those, those are some of the sweetest words I've ever heard in my whole life. So I end up scouting for the Nets for in 91, 92, 92, 93. Um, and I was, so I was scouting and coaching for that 91, 92 year. So I was scouting, I'm sorry, I was coaching the team and practices and playing games uh, kind of Monday to Friday. And then I'd go catch at least one game each on Saturday and Sunday, college games. And sometimes I could even catch two games on a Saturday if they were playing close enough. So I'll try to speed up the story, man, because I know I'm taking up a whole lot of your time. 
it's a good thing that we can edit this out. So you'll take, you know, all of my <laughs> You're good, man. Keep going. So um 92, 93. So the second season, I end up I'm doing some regional scouting, but I'm also doing international scouting also. Um, because some of the scouts on the team were a bit older, didn't like to travel as much, and I love traveling anyway. So Willis says, hey, why don't you do some of the international stuff as well? I said, hey, happy to. So I'm scouting. So I'm not, I'm not coaching now um, at Northern Valley Regional anymore. I did the two seasons. So 92, 93, I am just scouting for the Nets. And I, and I had, so I'd had uh, scouting trips that might last two or three weeks, and I'd come back home. And I'd have maybe a week or two off. So I happened to be Catholic. I lived on 97th and Riverside Drive. And the church that I would attend, Holy Name of Jesus Church, was on 96th and Amsterdam, basically a, a long drive away. If you can hit a drive straight, I can't, but I, I aspire to one day. And so the pastor, the head priest, Father James Hines, uh, had gotten, I, I got to know him a little bit at Mass. So they were asking for volunteers to teach English as second language. So I thought to myself, okay, well, I've got a little bit of free time. Why not try to you know, help out a little bit? So I'm teaching English as second language to mostly South American and Caribbean immigrants um, when I'm in the States or when I'm not scouting. And so then I have a scouting trip to Paris and I've got to go see uh, Georgie Murasan. Georgie was seven yeah. foot seven. Yeah. And, um, so I go to Paris, I meet the agent, go watch a few games, get some video. And now I'm flying home. And who's on the plane in the front part of the, not in first class, but in the front part of the plane is Father Jim Hines. You know, and he's wearing his black shirt with the white little collar. And so I see him and I'm, I said, Father, what are you doing on this plane? As if priests can't fly, right? Or fly. <laughs> Another one of my dumb questions. And so he explained he had some business, whatever it was. And so I go back to where I was sitting. And um, mid-flight, he comes back to me. And he says, uh, hey, I want... So Father Jim was a member of what's uh, the Franciscan order. Franciscans are, an, are a Roman Catholic order of priests. And they had taken over. They were staffing this church. Holy Name Church on 96th and Amsterdam. So he says to me, he says, hey, you know that building where you're teaching ESL? And I knew it because it was this beautiful old, it was built in 1902. It was a brick building on 97th Street between Broadway and Amsterdam Avenue. And it had four floors. The third floor had a gymnasium. It wasn't a official 94 by 50. It was like 72 by 35. But there was a multi-purpose room on the first floor some offices on the second floor and the fourth floor wasn't even really a floor. It was an overhang that looked onto the gym floor. So parents or people could stand up there and watch the activity. So I, so I was teaching the classes in there and the building wasn't run down, but it almost kind of was, or maybe should have been, but it was safe enough. And so father Jim says, Hey, we've just raised a quarter of a million dollars to renovate that building. And I don't know if you know this, Michael, but we Franciscans are very much into social service ministry and helping the poor, trying to be active out there in the community. What we want to do is we want to renovate this building and we want to found and operate a community center, a not-for-profit organization. But Michael, I want you to help me found it and operate it. And so, um, okay, so I get home, take the taxi from JFK back to my apartment and um, 
I'm sure we've all had these moments in our life when we look in a mirror and pose questions, right? And the conversation for me went, I'm getting paid to go to Paris to watch basketball, things that I would gladly pay a premium just to do anyway. And so let me, let me do a one year give back. That was the concept. I'm gonna do this for 12 months because I don't wanna lose my, I don't wanna say my space or my spot or whatever you wanna call it, my position there at the Nets, but I had no intention of leaving the NBA, but I felt strongly about, okay, the blessings that I have, I happen to believe in God, God gave me these, and now this other thing is in front of me, so let me go and do this. So I went to Willis and I said, look, this thing has come up, I'd like to do it, but again, I don't wanna, I don't wanna leave my net family, can I kind of have a year sabbatical to go do this thing, but I'd like to be able to come back. And Willis and his typical Willis form said, absolutely. I think it's a nice thing that you're doing. And yes, there'll be a place for you to scout here when you come back. And so that was 1993. And now I'll try to, I, I, I lied and said I'd do the Reader's Digest version and I couldn't be more wordy, right? So, nine, so one year ends up turning into 12. So 1993, um, the budget of the place was $27,000. And I, I remember that number because it was my salary. So 27,000. And what ends up happening is um, we get very lucky. We found some really excellent people to help us begin to build programs. And the budget for the Franciscan Community Center by year five or six was now $1 million. And we'd gotten a number of uh, foundations to fund programs, counseling programs, summer camps, after school tutorials, senior citizens. Um, so I had no idea that I would ever be there that long, but, but the work that I was doing was very fulfilling. I worked with people whose, whose hearts and minds were in the right place. It's, a, it's mostly, it's a, it's a very interesting neighborhood. It's a black and Latino neighborhood, mostly from Broadway up to Amsterdam and Columbus, where a lot of our clients came from. But west of Broadway toward Riverside Drive was more white collar, um, which was great because we founded a, a version of the Salvation Army store. And we called it the St. Francis Thrift Store. So people would bring whatever, clothes, furniture, books, and then we would resell it, uh, asking for a donation to that other part of the community that was really going to benefit from buying a brand new suit that somebody had grown out of and selling it for $8 or whatever it was. So we were able to raise money for the community center and at the same time do a lot of good, hopefully, for the people in the neighborhood. So I'm there from 93 to 2005. So around 19... 1998 or so is when I start to get a little bit itchy and I say to myself, I love what the Franciscan Community Center does um, and I'm, I'm proud of the work and it's super important. And, and, and in fact, it may be the most important work I'll ever end up doing in my life. And if that's the case, so be it. But at the time I said, but you know what? I, this is not my life's calling I got to get back to my passion and what I love doing. And, and how am I going to do that now? Okay, yeah, I scouted for the Nets for a couple of years. I played a little bit, coached a little bit here and there. But 
And I don't know if you guys are going to remember this or have followed the NBA so closely, but there were, there were lockouts in 1995. And, and so words like the salary cap and collective bargaining and mid-level exceptions and these things that heretofore nobody had ever bothered paying attention to when talking about basketball. Now they're come, becoming very popular and important. And so I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to law school. And I'm going to try to learn a little bit about collective bargaining and agency and representation and contracts and negotiation, negotiating. And I'm going to try to have some sense of these things that I know that NBA GMs are currently outsourcing to accountants or to lawyers, because a lot of GMs at that time, just they, they, they grew up with the game and playing and coaching, but the CBA and all these rules and regulations and things were just were new and not their forte. And so I thought if I can combine my little bit of playing and coaching and scouting background with uh, knowledge of some of these things, maybe that can add some real value to a front office. So I end up applying to and going to Brooklyn Law School uh, at night from 2000 to 2004. So I kept my job. Um, the beautiful thing was I didn't make a lot of money at the community center, but I made just enough and I was blessed to have rent stabilization. So I paid a whole lot less rent than typically you might have um, on Riverside Drive and, and 97th Street, but it was a, just enough money that I could write a big check every semester and not owe any money when I came out of Brooklyn. So I went to school at night, four years. So I'd work um, Monday to Friday, go to work eight till five and get on the subway, take the two, three train down to Brooklyn, Brooklyn Law School. And, um, and then I would read cases on the weekends. So it, it was three or four years of, I would call it, um, I would call it hard work. Um, and so I got through, I took the, uh, passed the New York and New Jersey bar exam in 2004. And um, I had let the community center know a year early that I was going to be leaving the community center on December 31st, 2004 to go pursue the next chapter in my life. So um, that brings us to 2005. And so I, I want to, I feel badly because I'm just doing so much talking. So I get hired by the magic in 2000, in August, 2012. So what happened, Mike, between 2005 and 2012? And that's the that's the, that's the part of the story worth telling because that's the persistence. Michael, you're crazy. That's my mom. And so what I did from 2005 to 2012, most of that time I was working at a, at a wonderful law firm called Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton and Garrison, big firm in Midtown. Um, but that wasn't my calling as, as you know, it, but it, it paid me enough and it gave me enough vacation time that I could go to every NBA event that was happening throughout the year for all of that time. So I would go to the Vegas Summer League, the Orlando Summer League, the Portsmouth, Virginia College Invitational, the Chicago pre-draft, wherever NBA personnel were, that's where I went. So I don't think I had a vacation for seven years, but, but again, me going to a basketball tournament, that's, that's better than a vacation. So, um, I end up doing a little bit of work with the uh, Dallas Mavericks and their, it's now the G League at that time, it was the D League with uh, Donnie Nelson, who had done me a, a solid and given me an opportunity to work. Donnie had just purchased the, that, the D League team with a local Dallas businessman. 
So I was in Dallas in uh, 2010, worked with them. I'd had a number of interviews and kind of near misses, if you will, in terms of some jobs that almost happened in 2006 and seven, and again in 2009 with some NBA teams, but nothing had come together. And then um, finally in 2012, I, um, let me, let me go back a year. So 2011, I end up, so throughout all these years now, I'm building a lot of relationships around the league and talking to people, seeing them at events. So people know my face a tiny bit. Some guys remember me or talk to me. Um, and so in 2011, I end, up I end up reaching out to Sam Presti, who was running the Oklahoma City Thunder, still is, and um, to offer some services help them do some scouting locally in the northeast and sam has rob hennigan return you know, my inquiry rob and i spent about an hour and a half on the phone that day kind of hit it off a little bit and p.s um i did a little bit of it was informal it wasn't scouting it wasn't being paid but just scouting some games to build more rapport with rob and provide some value to them even in a very limited way and Rob Hennigan ends up getting hired as the general manager of the Orlando Magic in June of 2012. And so I call Rob about three days later after he's hired. I'm sure he wasn't surprised to hear from me. And uh, he says to me, hey, I'm going to be out at Vegas for Summer League. And, uh, and I was already going to be there. And so um, I go out there and I interview with Rob. I interview with Scott Perry, who Rob had just hired to be his right-hand guy and assistant general manager. And, um, and the magic hire me. Uh, and I remember the date, it was August 3rd, 2012. It was 6.23 PM. That's when Rob Hennigan called me to tell me that I was being hired. So that was 91 months, cause I was keeping count um, as was my mom and some other people in my life from, the, from January 1, 2005, when I started to, uh, to try to, to get a job back with an NBA team. So it was a long, long, I've left out a ton of stories, obviously, and things in that mix. But, um, but like I said earlier, the moral of the story is, uh, if I can do it, anybody can. Um, but you have to have thick skin, be able to take no, um, keep on moving. Um, for me, prayer helped. And, um, and then I was able to finally, and, and that day when Rob called, um, is about the greatest high I can imagine anybody can ever could ever sense and, and feel. And, um, and may, I haven't had a child yet. My, you know, I, I got married a couple of years ago, but maybe that high is greater, but um, to have gone that long path and road and then finally get there uh, was certainly something that uh, I'll never forget. Let me stop talking, man. No, up. no, no, no. That's a, it's an awesome story. And you know, that's what I wanted everyone to hear because you know, trust me, a lot of people have told me I was crazy, you know, for pursuing my dreams. And, um, you know, everyone has forks in the road and, and they have to make these kinds of decisions, you know, whether you're going to pursue it or not. But obviously your path kept bringing you right back to your heart. And your heart was obviously the game of basketball. And that all started, you know, prior to to going to Wesleyan, but it was cultivated during your time with coach Kenny, as you told us, you know, yeah. your time in Wesleyan and, and, you know, it's just a great story, you know, the, the community outreach and, you know, leading to the, you know, deciding that maybe your best path to get involved was to become a lawyer. I mean, that's some next level stuff, man. And it's, 
it's awesome, you know, and it's a one of a kind story. It really is. So, you know, when I saw it, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know a ton about you before I was prepping for the interview, but when I did start learning, I was, I was captivated. I'm glad that you were able to share as much of it as you, as you possibly could with our listeners tonight, because it really is a, a one of a kind story of, of, you know, really just keeping at it and pecking away until you get the call. I just, I just have one question. When's, when's the book coming out? Right. <laughs> I, and then after that's the movie. I mean, come on. What a right. story. That's awesome. That it is, awesome. Is, it is amazing, man. Right, it is so good. So here, here's the, here's the deal, Mike. We, we've only got a couple more minutes left, but what I want to ask you, coach and I do this every single week. What we want to know is if you could go back and, 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 and tell today's student athletes at Wesley, and what's one piece of advice you would give the current Wesleyan student athlete? I mean, I'll say this. I don't know if every student athlete needs to hear it, but I was a, I was a very good student in high school and kind of straight A's and did the work that I had to do. And, um, and then I got to Wes and it's not that I stopped being a student because I, I was, but the freshmen played in the afternoons and then the varsity guys played at night. And so I was playing with both groups. And so then, so I'd go to class, come back, play ball in the small gym from three to five, go to Mocon, have dinner. I know Mocon's no, Mike knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Finish dinner, go back to the Fairweather, play with the varsity guys. And now I'm getting back to my room at whatever it is, nine, nine thirty, ten, 10, and then doing homework or doing reading. So I, I, and that's fine. Now you have to make compromises sometimes like um, to, to strike the best balance and to be as efficient just with time. And, and, and just, I guess my ultimate point is to make the most of, because the, the Wesleyan education, the professors, your fellow students, your coaches, you name it, are, are so elite and there, there's so much there to, to grasp and wrap your arms around in terms of the education, not only in the classroom, obviously, but every place else. Um, I didn't get as much out of Wes as I, as I feel like I wanted to. I got plenty out. I, I, I'm not afraid of work and I, I managed to find the time to do it all, but certainly to make sure you, you, you strike that balance, but really make the most of that. Um, is, is the first thing I would say. And again, I think most people who go to Wesleyan probably are getting into West and going there because they've been striking balances and, and putting in the work, certainly. And the second part I would say is, I, um, and again, I gotta use the word, I will, diversity. But you know, I, I came from, I mean, originally New York City, but Bergen County, Ridgewood Bergen Catholic was an all boys school. It was all white. There was one, uh, Tony Clary. I still remember his name. Tony was a friend. He happened to be African-American. But so I came from that demographic, if you will. Um, and then to get to Wes, and it's a small school. I mean, you guys already know, 2,600 when I was there. But the sheer number of different people, and I don't only mean different race or religion, just interests, just skills, ambitions. I mean, Mike, you know this too. I mean, just all these years as we've gone along, our classmates who have written in movies, starred in movies, acclaimed writers, doctors, I mean, 
Eric Mangini, you, Bill Bell, I mean, you name it, right? So, um, to just, so I think I, I probably really wrapped my arms around it, embraced it, I think probably toward the end of my sophomore and junior, only because I was just sort of just locked into playing all this basketball and trying to do the schoolwork. Um, and I was also, I was an RA, a resident advisor in my junior year, which also exposed me a lot to other parts of the campus. But I think just the second part is if you're doing your schoolwork and you're playing a sport and working as hard as you can at that, there are only so many hours in a day. So there are going to be some areas where you can't, you know, be 100%. But I would just say, if you're going to be at West, man, you got to make, you got to, you got to make the most of it and find, and find a way to, to go outside of yourself or when you're tired and you want to stay in, no, I got to go to that seminar. I got to go see that, that, that the dance hall, that concert. And um, I got into that more, I think my, in my latter half and really enjoyed it. And I remembered thinking, oh man, I wish I would have been going to these things when I was a freshman. But um, so the typical lessons we learn, you know, from our parents or from literature, seize the day, seize the, seize the education, seize the experience. So again, I'm way too long-winded when I do speak. <laughs> I don't speak that much, but um, make the most of it. Um, embrace everyone, make friends, talk to the professors. There's just so much there. It'd be a shame to not make the most of it. So I would, I would say that. We, uh, we usually uh, also ask a question about the, uh, the value of the liberal arts education and you know, um, the skills that it teaches you. But like listening to your story and your journey, that right there is a perfect example of what the critical skill set that Wesleyan gives you. Yeah. I mean, obviously you had, you had some of those skills going into it, but to, to, to leave Wesleyan and take that journey that you went on, I mean, the twists, the turns, you know, the, 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 the ups, the downs, the, per, the, the perseverance, I mean, just, just incredible. I mean, I think, it, I think it speaks volumes in terms of, you know, how Wesleyan prepared you for, you know, your journey after graduation. I couldn't agree more, Mike. Um, you, you hit it right on the head there. And, and in ways that, like you said, I, I didn't, there were times, especially at the community center when you're, you're, you're writing grants, you're raising money, you're, you're mopping the floor when there's a leak, um, you're, you're talking a homeless person out of the alcove of the building, um, you're taking a group of 15 year olds across country to Oklahoma to camp. I mean, but the number of different just life transactions and experiences that, um, how do you ever prep for those things? But I think certainly my, my mom and dad are, you know, part of that reason, but certainly in Bergen Catholic as well, but the Wesleyan education and all those things that we, critical thinking, opening your mind, you know, law school helped as well in terms of seeing that, boy, nothing is really ever black and white, or it's hard to find those things. Um, but your, your point is spot on. Um, like I said, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't trade West. I wouldn't, one of the best decisions of my life, certainly. Okay, Michael, we've got time for one last thing. We're going we're gonna to zip through. This is something we do at the end of every episode. We call it the gauntlet. We're going to ask you 10 questions real quick. First thing that pops into your head, uh, Coach and I will bounce back and forth. Coach, you ready? Ready to go. All right, you set it off, Coach. All right. 
So you got to think back now to the eighties. Okay, Michael. All right. What, what, who was your favorite professor at West? Professor Fry. Uh, chemistry. Chemistry. Wow. All right. Wow. Yeah. All right. yeah I was, my dad happens to be a doctor and I was pre-med for two years. Okay. Um, so I did the whole gauntlet in organic chem, bio, organic lab. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut off. I know this is a gauntlet. Here. Let me shut up. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I think I know the answer to this next one. Who is the most influential person in your life? Well, it's, it's two people. It's, it's mom and dad. So. All right. Perfect. That's a good answer. Good answer. All right. So I don't know if we covered this, but what was your first job after graduating from Wes? I was a paralegal in the real estate department okay, of the law firm Sage Gray, Todd and Sims. If you had to cheer for one, would it be Amherst or Williams? Oh man, that's a, that's a great question because <laughs> I don't, uh, it's okay. I, I, you can, you yeah, can say, I, I honestly, you can say neither. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I'd say neither. I'd say neither. <laughs> All right. When you were five years old, what'd you want to be when you grew up? When I was five, I was on 14786th Avenue in Whitestone, picking up a basketball for the first time and falling in love. I, I would dare say, I think I wanted to be a pro basketball player, even at that age. Nice. What's the best piece of advice you received in your life? Um, two of them. They're from my dad. He sat at the head of the table. I'm the oldest of six. I sat just to his left and he would say lots of things. And two of them was the first one was, he would say it to all of us, but he says, never lose the opportunity to remain silent, Michael. And then the second one would typically be when one of us was talking about ourselves or not showing the requisite consideration and he, and he would say you always have to remember to stop thinking about yourself and put yourself in the place of someone else and how they feel and, for, and I, I think I know why that stays with me but and my mom had great sayings as well but I, I was blessed to have the man who raised me good answer um in three words they don't have to be. They don't have to be consecutive words. They can be just be you know three words. Uh, describe your West experience. Exhilarating. Pardon me for using the word, but I have to. Educational, but in in so many ways. And um, I'll say I got to hyphenate. Eye opening. Eye opening. Good. What do you most miss about Westland? I miss. I miss the people. I, I miss the friends. You know, I, I was not in a frat um, because I felt like I was, right? And, and I don't know if you were in a frat, Mike, but, you know, you're 15 guys who you play with um, and, and you're, you're basically living with these people every day. Um, so you miss the camaraderie. You miss the laughter. It's what, it's what pro players talk about after they retire. And, you know, what do they miss about it? Um, I, I miss those friends um, and those times together um, while we were all going through the challenges and the ups and the downs and, and going through it together and helping each other, but just the camaraderie and the bonds that, um, that you nurtured and, and enjoyed every day. And I was blessed to have some guys and gals that uh, I, I, 
that I had that with. So, yeah. Great. What would you say is the best Wesleyan highlight? Can be anything about Wesleyan from the last 20 years. That's a good question. Man, I'm struggling. Um, well, it could be. I mean, it, it could be the best Wesleyan highlight of the last 20 years. Could be, you know, you getting to spend this time with Chris and Coach on Beyond the Box. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm just I'm could, could be could be Coach Riley win the NESCAC championship. Could be Coach you know, Whalen I mean, win so the that, little three. Well, the, I mean, th that was that was precisely where I was. I think I actually drove up to. Uh, they played at Amherst that year, right? Um, no, it was actually at Trinity. At coaches on Oh, right, right. No, no, I'm sorry. I went to Amherst when they lost, if it was a year before or not. And, and that was the one that I was going to say. I was just trying to not talk sports and just come up with something else as a highlight. Um, you know, my – the 25th uh, – so it was the 30th. The 30th reunion, I mean, happened to be a wonderful highlight for me. There you go. That's um, good. So I, I, I'll leave it at those two. Um, okay. All right, perfect. Of course, after we hang up, I'll think of three things. And, uh, no problem. I'll text All right. Here, here's the last one. Yeah. Who is the West alum you'd most like to have dinner with? Any Wesleyan alum? I think I have to say Belichick. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's usually one of two. It's usually one of two. It's been, it's been Bill Belichick or Lin-Manuel Miranda, one of the two. Yeah, so, that's right. There you go. You're right, you're, you're right there. You're right there. Well, so. Michael... Michael, class of 1986, Alciari. Bene, bene, molto bene. You passed the gauntlet, my friend. You are home free. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a slow-moving gauntlet, my bad. All right. But, uh, power, with the power of editing, it's going to go very fast, my friend. Right. <laughs> um, hey, man, thanks so much. This is, it's been nice for, to kind of just jog my memory and, and think back to us. It's funny. It, in the first few years, I don't know for you, Mike, but, you know, I guess you, you're getting started on your career and maybe you think a little bit less about Wes or, or college. But then especially after I'd gotten to uh, when I finally got into the NBA the second time or whatever it was. I mean, I've had a number of West students call. You know, I was on the phone with Gabe Milstein a couple of days ago. Um, yeah. Coach Riley, when he got the job, called right away. Not just me. I mean, all, all the alumni. He did a wonderful job of reconnecting. But I, I, I guess it's, it's the thing as you get older, I guess. You just grow. You want to explore your past more, your family roots as well. But getting back to West at least once a year was always something I wanted to do. So, um, but tonight, you know, given COVID and the inability to move around as much, this has been, uh, this has been great, man. I really appreciate you guys uh, thinking about me and including me in this. Well, we really appreciate you spending the time with us. And now that uh, now that we've connected, Michael, uh, you know we we definitely once this COVID thing is behind us, we got to get you up. We got to get you up, watch the game, hang out together. Absolutely, and, uh, man. Next time I make my way up, I'll I'll let you know. I don't know if your phone number, but I'll contact you. Maybe we can grab a bite. Um, that would be great, man. I want to hear love to. All love to. what you've been up to. You got it, man. Great. Thanks for the time okay. tonight. All Guys, the thanks so much. Okay, that's going to do it for us tonight. For our guest, Michael Arcieri, for the coach, Mike Whalen. I'm Chris Grace. You've been listening to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. Until next time, so long, everybody.